It's that wholehearted surrender to the Lord that's crucial in order to be filled with the Spirit and have the empowering that we need to resist the temptations that come at us daily and to walk in the Spirit, bear the fruit of the Spirit, and serve the Lord and accomplish what purposes He has for our lives. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. A topic that comes up almost weekly in our Candid Planning meeting is biblical discipleship, the importance of being discipled in Christ by mature believers, and the importance of discipling others as you mature in the faith. It's a vast topic we often cover on Candid with the Christian faith conversations that we have. And today's conversation on growing in the Christian faith is with Thomas Terrence, a guest we couldn't wait to have back on the podcast. He is an author and the president emeritus of the C.S. Lewis Institute. Tom holds a master's of divinity degree and a doctor of ministry degree in Christian spirituality. He has so much biblically informed, life-tested wisdom to share. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. In it, we get back to some fundamental basics of the Christian faith and are reminded of the importance of being part of the body of Christ who is prayerfully preparing to stand firm in the faith in the coming days. Join me now for this inspiring, candid conversation. Well, today my guest is a return guest, Tom Terrence, uh, who has written the book Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love. And uh, we've told your story before from violent Klansmen to washed in the blood of Christ and now heavily involved in church and C.S. Lewis Institute and so many wonderful organizations and causes and um We're so grateful, Tom, for you taking the time. I know you've got a busy schedule and you've been traveling, but um, I'm always grateful for our time together. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. It's always good to be with you, and so I'm looking forward to this. Well, Tom, I don't know if you're aware, but, you know, there's some new research that's coming out on the de-churched. I've done an interview with Michael Graham, who's in a church in Orlando, and they've done some groundbreaking work on... Uh, some of these statistics, it's like 30 to 50 million Americans who used to go to church and no longer do. It's the largest and fastest shift in U.S. history. And, um, you know, when we were thinking about this topic and and this issue and, and connecting with Michael, I thought Thomas Terrence would be a wonderful guest to have on as we think about the role of the church, of discipling believers As you know, we've seen a shift in, uh, as I've just given numbers, but profiles of people who once would attend church with some regularity. And then when COVID time came through, we were all forced to do virtual church. And now it seems that very few people are returning back to church. What are some of the things that you're seeing in your circles and in your your part of the country? Well, I'm hearing what you're talking about from pastors, and we see it in our church, but not as much, apparently, as uh, what goes on other places. So 
but it's happening everywhere. And I guess it varies a bit depending on the strength of the commitment of the people in the mm. congregation and how mature they are in Christ. Mm. I think that has a lot to do with it. It's kind of a new a new era we're in. Yeah. Yeah, we have very, to find our way step by step. It's very new territory. One of the questions I have is, I mean, in a sense, how did we get here? So a lot of this will come from what were churches teaching and emphasizing that hasn't come through? An event like COVID could take place and people didn't feel like they needed that in-person fellowship, that they felt like they could just kind of maybe watch online, maybe come with far less regularity. What were some of the things that you think led up to where something like that could happen and did happen? There are a number of factors involved in this. Mm. Evangelicalism has never had a strong ecclesiology. Right. And that's kind of a big issue. Mm. Lots of parachurch groups and that and the other, but... um, an appreciation of the church has not been as strong as it ideally should have been. Yeah. So with that as the backdrop, I, I think it hasn't been helped by the lack of teaching on the church, what the church is, an mm. understanding of the church. Yeah. People, you know, think, well, Sunday I need to go to church and uh, check that box. Yeah. Tradition. Tradition, yeah, just but the concept of the church is is seriously lacking, I think, in the lives of many people, mm. and um, I think that contributes to a lot of other problems too. Uh, people mm. a lot of times come to be entertained; they probably wouldn't put it that way. But <laughs> no, right? They come to be entertained or to fulfill some kind of. Um, obligation they feel, religious Mm. obligation. Mm. Like if they miss church too much, things are going to start going south. God's not going to be blessing them like he was It becomes superstition or something, right? Yeah, yeah. uh, It's amazing how we can drift into this kind of thinking. But uh, what's helpful, I think, is to try to recapture a biblical understanding of the church. And um, that takes us back to The New Testament takes us back to the Gospels and the book of Acts and the epistles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, the church in those days was actually not an institution, and it absolutely was not a building. (laughs) Right. (laughs) If you look at at the number one starting point, it was Jesus and the Twelve. Yeah. That was a kind of prototype, you might say. Jesus pulled together... 12 guys and formed them into a community. Mm. And in that community, he taught them, he mentored them, he, he trained them, he sent them out on mission, mm. debriefed with them afterwards. Mm. It was a corporate thing. It wasn't all one-on-one, you know, which we right. tend to gravitate toward because of our culture is so oriented to individualism yes, big and time. independence in mm. America. Those aren't bad things, but the question is the degree. And so it's easy to think of Christianity as um, faith in Christ as being me and Jesus. Yeah, me and well, God. 
This is it. Yeah, well, of course that's true, but it doesn't stop there. That's the beginning. It's the foundation yeah. of everything. It's, but, it's uh, incomplete, right? It absolutely is incomplete, and it's not what God intended, and your Christian life will absolutely not work and not flourish if you are not in the kind of relational matrix that God has intended. He designed all of this. Church is his idea. It's not man's idea. Right. And um, a lot of people don't realize that. You know, they think, oh, it's just a bunch of people that got together with a Bible and made right. a bunch of rules. and Organized religion, right? Uh, organized religion, yeah. <laughs> organized religion. And so I don't need that. You know, right. and you can uh, sympathize with some folks who have uh, seen some negative things in organized religion. Sure. You know, there's certainly a, a place for sympathizing with uh, some people, but uh, they need to be helped to see that there's something more here. In the book of Acts, what happened, and you see in the beginning, is Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit hmm. on this group of praying disciples. Yeah. And you had an amazing thing. They were empowered. Peter, who had just denied him a few weeks earlier, now stands up and preaches to some of the same people right. that uh, crucified Jesus. And mm. so empowered by the Spirit. And then look what happens. 3,000 people are converted. Mm. And what do they do? You see in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves mm. to certain things. Yes. The apostles' teaching was certainly a big part of that. Right. And all evangelicals would rejoice for that part, but there's more. And right. um, let me just uh, read the passage here. And there's something extremely important for us to take away from this. Okay, in 242 of Acts, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, mm. to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Okay, so first comment. They devoted themselves. That Greek word underlying devoted is a very strong word, mm. and it, it means that they gave themselves really zealously mm. and steadfastly. It wasn't, oh, well, I'll read the Bible once a day or I'll read it once a week or something. They devoted themselves to these four practices, the teaching and then the fellowship. Now, that word we all know, koinonia, mm -hmm. which is a word that conveys the idea of, of a sharing of your life and who you are and what you have with others. Nowadays, it is often thought of as... Um, coffee and donuts between services. <laughs> that's right, in the fellowship hall. <laughs> right. And that's good. That's good to yeah. do. No, uh, yeah, absolutely. It. Right. But it doesn't even begin to touch on what this means. And as we read on down here in the rest of um, the chapter, it talks about how they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing mm -hmm. the proceeds to all as any had need. That was sharing at a very deep level in the practical needs of brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. and you see this again in Acts chapter 5, and then you see it in First John where he says, how can you say you love your brother and you see mm -hmm. him in need and you don't meet the need, you know? Yeah. And so it means a lot more than, than often we realize. And then the breaking of bread— well, that wasn't uh, 
just um, simply having a meal together, which they did. They, they right. had a meal. Yeah. But in the earliest days, the communion was part of a meal. Yeah, it was a full meal, right? Yeah, they had a meal and communion was part of it, just like when Jesus celebrated the uh, the first, I guess you'd say, the first communion. Um, the Last Supper and the First Communion. Yeah, exactly. Those became separated in time. Mm-hmm. But um, the idea here is a close connection with people, sharing in these very deep and sacred things, you know, yeah. the, the, yeah. um, the Lord's Supper and then sharing a meal with people that you're close to. Well, and the meal is sort of uh, looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? That there will be a, uh, yeah. a, a day when we are in together in perfect unity and under the perfect headship of Christ. And there's no more weeping. And, you know, like in Corinth, there was all kinds of division and people eating ahead of others and casting other people out. And that's why Paul's so upset about the way they're abusing the communion and he's, you know, it's, but it's a looking forward to what that meal will look like in in the new heavens and the new earth. It is, it is indeed. And so you have those elements and then you have the reference to the prayers. Yeah. So you've got these four things and that prayer is getting together and really praying and interceding, uh, not as a lone ranger, but with a group of other people. Now, how many people? 3,000? Right. Well, they met together in the temple precincts where you could have 3,000 in homes. And, of course, they did not have the kinds of track mansions we have today. Poverty was very widespread in mm. Israel. Mm. In fact, in the Roman Empire, the poverty rate was about 90%. Mm. And people lived in tenements and hovels and whatnot, uh, there were a few people in the church that were better off, but mm. um, most of these people would have lived in a small accommodation there in Jerusalem. Population of Jerusalem has been estimated at that point as about 25,000, maybe. Mm. More recent scholars have said, well, it could be up to 60 or 70,000, but it's still not a, a sprawling metropolis. Right. But these people, these 3,000, would have spread out into little small groups of about 10 to 12, the scholars tell us, would mm-hmm. be the norm. And occasionally, if you had a, a family was a little better off, like we see in Acts chapter 12, you know, the story of Peter escaping from the prison, courtesy mm-hmm. of the angel, and right. uh, goes to this home that Cornelius? has quite a... No, it's it's. Uh, I think it's um, Mark's mother. Maybe I've oh, forgotten right. the exact whose home it was, but it's somebody in the church that had a larger home that had a door and had a a person that. You're right. Yes, took, it's you're right. It's Mark's mother's home. Mark's yep. mother's home. Yep. Yeah. So um, those places could accommodate maybe forty to fifty people. Yes. And so what would happen is you'd have maybe three or four of those ten or twelve person churches, and that's what yeah. they were. They were little yeah. congregations. Yeah. And not just in Jerusalem, but throughout the Roman Empire. That's the original house church movement. And a good book on this by Robert Banks, a scholar of, of this sort of thing, uh, gives some interesting details on uh, the um, home church movement and uh, Paul's ministry with folks there. But why am I going into all of this? It's simply to say, when you have a group that you meet with regularly, and they met weekly, yeah. 
and more often, but they definitely met weekly. You meet weekly with 10 to 12 people. You begin to form some... <laughs> You're going to know them very well. <laughs> yes, form some <laughs> yeah. close relationships. Yeah. yeah. And that is part of the whole process of discipleship, mm. of growing as a disciple. You learn in community. The Holy Spirit, as Paul elaborates in 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit distributes gifts to people according to what he knows to be the need in a given congregation mm. so that people are able to serve one another. Gifts of the Spirit aren't about you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they are means by which you can be used by God to bless someone else. Mm. And so you have that kind of thing in a small group, various people, different gifts. This one can minister to that one and and so forth. Mm. If you're all by yourself, if you're sitting at home watching a television screen, you don't have access to those gifts that you need. Yes. And those people don't have access to the gifts that Spirit's given you to share with them. Yes. It's hugely important. So. Can you grow without being in one of these groups? Well, yes, I think you can, but you won't grow nearly as well. You won't grow in a healthy, robust, balanced way. Mm. You'll be stuck in a kind of perpetual infancy Mm. if you don't avail yourself of what God has given as the means of grace, the means by which we grow in grace. That's right. And we have a lot of people in the church Unfortunately, and I I love the church. I don't like to throw stones. We have to be realists in order to understand what the solution is. But we have a lot of people who just haven't seen this, haven't gotten engaged, and uh, aren't growing in a normal, healthy way. Mm. And so that's a big part of what I think you opened with, Mm. people Mm. not appreciating the importance of being part of a congregation and probably didn't hear enough about it in church before the COVID came. Yeah. And um, maybe they just, well, I know a lot of places, especially bigger churches, people go to hear the sermon. That's the main attraction is right. the sermon. Yeah. And even the the way that the building is aligned and set up, it's to watch the one thing and then Right. So you say, or it's really dark. So you can't even, even if you were sitting next to someone, you wouldn't be able to see them. Yeah. I actually (laughs) visited a church a few weeks ago and it was exactly that situation. There was, there were hundreds of people in the congregation and lots of lights of various colors and smoke machines. And uh, those who were singing, you know, all the lights were on them, but everything else was dark. And those who were speaking, when they'd get up, the, everything was on them. You yeah. know? Now, I have to say, the preaching was fantastic. It was not any of this uh, pablum. I mean, it was really solid biblical preaching. Yeah. But I couldn't see, you know, anybody else in there. It was just pitch black, basically. And so maybe they figure that's the best way to do what they're trying to do. But it's really vital that we have these relationships if we want to grow and mature in Christ. Mm. I guess that's all of what I'm saying here is just trying to underscore that point. Yeah. And the fact that we haven't been doing that makes it a lot easier to say, well, I don't know that I need to go back. I'm 
I'm okay watching it on TV. Yeah, which kind of starts a process that's, you know, it can easily become, and people would say, no, this wouldn't happen. But I mean, it, it often becomes a slippery slope where, you know, then you start watching less frequently. And eventually you just sort of say, I don't know if I need to watch this anymore. And it's easy to just remove that piece of the equation. And, you know, then where are you? Now you're in the wilderness. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Well, it seems like a lot of this, you know, especially within evangelicalism, to your point, it's this focus on the individual. And as you said, there is certain times to be focused on the individual, but when it's at an unhealthy degree, because it's modeling really our own culture, rather than modeling what is displayed for us, what's taught to us through the scriptures, even in looking in the Godhead, you know, the the, the triunity of God and the co-equalness of God and in his own fellowship with between the three persons of the Trinity. And then, you know, but because we're such a hyper individualistic culture, it's so easy for us to become and even think about the way we consume media. Tablets and phones are are just for the individual and, and everything's tailored for the individual. And I think churches can sometimes get caught up in that effort to replicate what the culture promotes. And we end up missing out on really the beauty and the design of what church isn't intended to be. I certainly agree with you, Jonathan. It's the same old thing, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right. We're in a, a conflict, a cosmic conflict, from the time we step forward to receive Jesus and to follow him. We're stepping away from the devil and his kingdom. Yeah. And as Jim Packer used to say, he wages a campaign to try to recover us. Mm. He views us as prisoners who have escaped from his jail. Mm. And he, he wants to return us to the jail. Mm. And he exploits things like the world offers. He, he uses whatever he can in the fallen world. Mm-hmm. Uh, to try to ensnare us and draw us away from Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so you got the devil as playing a role in this in individual lives. Or not actually, very few people get a personal visit from the devil, but he has many minions to do his bidding. Mm. And then we've got the flesh. You know that old fallen self mm. and. What happens to us when Christ comes into our lives, when we're born again, the Holy Spirit comes and breaks the bondage of sin in our lives. Mm-hmm. We're no longer bound by sin. The Holy Spirit is in us, residing in us. Mm-hmm. But the Holy Spirit does not reign in us automatically. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's been saved more than a few days will realize that temptations that characterize their old life have resurfaced, Yeah, you know, and that's understandable because we've got that to deal with and we can do deal with it through the power of the spirit. We are empowered. We're liberated from the bondage, but we have to choose. Yeah. We have to choose to yield to the spirit and reject the things of the flesh. Yeah. So there are lots of things floating around out here all day long, all around us that are attracting us. And you've got the pressures 
First John two fifteen to seventeen, John says, "Don't love the world or the things in the world." And then Paul talks about in Romans twelve two, "Don't be conformed to mm-hmm. this world, but yeah. be transformed by the renewal of your minds." Mm-hmm. And so we've got this pressure to conform. J.B. Phillips says, "Don't let the world squeeze you in to its mold." Mm-hmm. And so. The things you were talking about earlier, iPads or cell phones or this, that, and a world of other things, especially in American materialism, Mm -hmm. all these different things appeal to us, things of the flesh of the world, appeal to our fleshly interests. Mm -hmm. And we have to take a stand against those things and be transformed, allow ourselves to be transformed by the Holy Spirit and Mm -hmm. empowered by the Spirit to reject what's evil and cling to what's good. Mm -hmm. But you don't hear a lot of teaching about this either. So, I mean, people don't realize, I think many people don't realize, Paul, the key to this is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Paul says, as you know, in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Mm. And um, that verb there means to be continuously filled. Mm. And it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Yeah. If you're not being filled with the Spirit, you're in disobedience. If you're not being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. And that means filling with the Spirit means allowing Him to be in control. Yeah. Which then raises another question, who is in control? <laughs> Which takes you right back to Romans 12.1. Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's the wholehearted commitment. Same in Romans 6. It's that wholehearted surrender <laughs> to the Lord that's yeah. crucial in order to be filled with the Spirit and have the empowering that we need Mm. to resist the temptations that come at us daily and to walk in the Spirit, bear the fruit of the Spirit, and serve the Lord and accomplish what purposes He has for our lives. Mm. This is all basic stuff, but unfortunately, basic stuff doesn't seem to be very appealing or doesn't (laughs) doesn't get out there enough. Well, we need to always go back to it. And and it's interesting, even in Romans 6, you know, Paul's using the plural there. You all were dead with Christ and raised to new life with him, baptized in him. It's, it's, it's all that communal language of you all together. Yes. You don't do this in isolation as an individual. You actually do this with the people that he's put with you. Yes, exactly. Same in Ephesians. Mm. If you go back and look at the verbs, you'll see that it's not a focus on the individual. Yeah. Of course, the individual is part of, of the larger whole. Sure. But it's... A corporate mentality. Christianity is a relational faith. The Trinity is a relational Godhead, and Mm -hmm. His image is being restored in our lives, and it's a a relational work that He's doing. Mm. So, I mean, these are just a few observations about the importance of the church um, as a body of believers, not just as a building you go to or an institution. Well, I know you've been doing some work and research on discipleship. Is there anything you want to share with us? Any 
any sort of uh, areas that you just, you know, are just jumping to talk to someone about? <laughs> well, <laughs> you may not. <laughs> well, I've I just touched on it a little bit there a moment ago. Maybe I could preface my comments by saying it's getting darker. Hmm. Things are spiraling downward in the culture of the West. Mm-hmm. I spent enough time over in um, Europe and England to see firsthand what it's like there when secularism is really in charge. Mm-hmm. And we're moving the same direction. We're not quite as far along as they are, but we're moving, actually picking up speed. Mm-hmm. And persecution, there's already soft persecution in different places uh, in this country. And um, things are going to get a lot harder. Hmm. I remember a friend of mine that worked with Brother Andrew, who was the um, the famous uh, Bible smuggler. Yes. Brother Andrew was over here meeting with some people, speaking in churches and whatnot. Of course, he he saw what things were like in Russia because he smuggled lots of Bibles into Russia hmm. and, um, and other places, too. But he... He said, uh, I remembered this comment for years. He said, if persecution comes to America, there won't be many people left standing. Mm. And I think he's right because mm. our relationship with the Lord is so shallow. Yeah, You know, so many of us have been in this kind of perpetual infancy. And um, you can be an infant and be 60 or 70 years old. You know, spiritual right. infant. Yeah. You can be a spiritual infant and know a lot of Bible verses too. You know, it's yeah, not a great warning. Yeah, and especially for evangelicals, because it's not simply understanding and remembering Bible verses or theology on a cognitive level. We're called to something more. We're called to really know God personally, experientially, to know God and to know Jesus Christ. It's a relationship. And we're called to love God with all our heart, Mm. mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbors, ourselves. And this is a wholehearted kind of thing. It, It goes beyond simply understanding things. In the Bible, the heart is not simply the emotion, the organ of emotion, as right. we would tend to think in, in uh, our culture. Mm. It's you. It's the whole person. It's everything you are mixed together. It's the intellect, of course. It's the emotion. It's the will, the desires, all of those things woven together. Mm. The whole person, the center of who you are. And that's what we're called to do, to love God that way and that kind of a relationship. So that's more than simply knowing the Bible. Right. Of course, you start with the Bible, and you'll never get out of the Bible. Right. But it's knowing it in the fullness of our heart hmm. in a relational way. So that's a crucial thing to have strength to walk with the Lord and to be faithful to the Lord and to serve him and to bear fruit. Well, that involves something that is an unwelcome message because in the Bible, loving God is not simply a matter of, or your neighbor for that matter, is not simply a matter of feelings. (laughs) Right. It's loving God is fundamentally a response 
to his love that moves you to please him through obedience mm. and wanting to do the things that please him mm. is uh, having that desire in our hearts. That is uh, crucial. Mm. Absolutely. And of course, same thing goes with loving our neighbor is not primarily an emotional event. It is a, uh, an exercise of the will, seeking the good of the other person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those are crucial parts of this whole thing of being followers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it ties back into the Romans 12, one thing, you know, surrendering ourselves fully to the Lord. And sadly, a lot of American evangelicalism is um, wrapped up with an idea has been for a number of decades that Jesus has two plans. Plan A is you can have Jesus as your Savior. Plan B, which is for a smaller number of people who really want to be extreme, Lordship. Uh, you can take him on as Lord. Mm. Um, this is very, very common. Yeah. It was common when I was growing up, and it's still common. Sure. But the problem is that Jesus doesn't offer that deal. Mm, right. He offers himself as Lord mm. and Savior. The two go together. Yeah. And um, until we grasp that, I don't think we're going to make a lot of progress. Well, and to your point, if persecution comes, who will stand? Who will be ones who have been so deep-seated in a lordship salvation and, and, and not just a ticket to heaven mentality, but true, a true disciple, a true learner, follower, someone who has made it their life's goal to bring honor and glory to the Lord. And I think it's interesting that you bring up persecution because that's really what happens in Acts when those, those home church groups start scattering exactly <laughs> because persecution sends them out and they can't stop talking about it. And so they, uh, the church grows by that methodology that, that in God's wisdom he uses. Yeah. That's the picture. Um, mm. Paul, in fact, tells them in one of his missionary journeys, he, he said, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. Mm. Um, and he's just repeating what Jesus Said. I mean, Jesus in uh, Matthew 16 and Mark chapter 8, 34 to 38, looked at the crowds that were following him, and he mm -hmm. said, if anyone wants to follow me, be my disciple, let him deny himself, mm -hmm. take up his cross, and follow me. Mm -hmm. And he says it in an even more shocking way in 14th chapter of Luke when he talks about if you want to follow me, you know, you, you leave to, your family. Yeah, yeah. You ha hate your mother and father. And, <laughs> right. Uh, now, that often confuses people. Jesus, sure. Jesus always taught love. He didn't teach hatred, and he wasn't teaching it there. He was using hyperbole to try right. to emphasize to the, get point. the point. Yep. But the point simply is that he comes first, above yep. all, even your closest family, your closest and most treasured obligations and mm. all the rest, mm. he comes first. And, you know, denying yourself isn't saying, oh, Lent's coming, I'll stop eating sweets or something. <laughs> it's a matter of saying no to our self-centeredness, mm. you know? 
mm. which is the root of our problem is self-centeredness. Yeah. But sin arises from that self-centeredness. So saying no to self in order to say yes to Jesus mm. is not saying no just for the sake of it. You know, it's, it's saying no in order to say yes to something much better. Yeah. The following Jesus and then taking up your cross is, you know, that's another one that we've sort of trivialized. You know, we say, oh, well. My cross to bear. My cross to bear. It's <laughs> my mother-in-law. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> or the mother-in-law says, my son-in-law. <laughs> you know, or I'm getting old and I have arthritis. It's my cross to bear. Right. Well, you know, these things can be troublesome, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. Right. When Jesus used that word, everybody knew what he meant mm. because the Romans had crucified. In fact, just a few years before Jesus said this, the Roman governor of Syria, which controlled the whole larger area, which included Israel, Palestine, he had crucified 2,000 rebels, they call them, mm. Jewish freedom fighters, whatever along the roadways, one after another, scattered all over. Mm. But uh, oh, you talk about the cross. Every, everybody, that was the dreaded Roman instrument of um, execution, mm. most painful and humiliating and just an awful way to die. Mm. So what Jesus was saying simply was, you've got to be willing to give up your life mm. if faithfulness to me requires it. You don't hear much preaching on that these days, but that's what Jesus meant. I mean, you, there's no disputing that fact. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't say it once. I mean, he said it more than once. Um, well, we need to get ready. And uh, I pray often, Lord, make me strong in the weak places so I will be faithful in the time of trial mm. should it come. Mm. And... Um, Trials come in different ways, yeah. but we need we need to be ready. And you know, the, the wind used to be at our back in this country and in Europe. It's not anymore. It's in our face. Mm. So we need to get ready. And you know, I think when it was at our back, we could easily put our trust in other things, money and security and all those other things. But when the wind's in your face, what are you going to hold on to? Because a lot of those other things will blow away. You've got to grab hold of Christ. Yes. Amen. Well, Thomas, I always have so much fun talking with you, and, and, and we've really been talking about just the basics. And yet, it's always refreshing because you can never get too much of the basics. That's right. Amen. <laughs> Let me leave you with one vivid Please. thought here. You may remember the name John Stott. Yes, of course. John Stott was said to have made the greatest impact on Christianity in the 20th century of, of any believer. Mm. He and C.S. Lewis run neck and neck for that honor. But um, when John was dying, very close to the end, he could barely talk. Oz and Jenny Guinness, who'd been friends for many years with John, went to see him one last time. And uh, as the visit came to an end, Oz said, John, how can we pray for you? And John Stott said in his very weak, frail voice, pray that I will be faithful to the last breath. 
Words that we should all strive to live by. Indeed. What a great reminder. Thomas Terrence, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Candid Conversations. Thank you, Jonathan. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It does help people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.